Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. again today. Uh, It is the first Monday of January 2021, the year of the Lord. I made some comments about that at the top of the first hour. encourage you to go and grab that podcast if you missed it at myfaithradio.com. I have a lot of words. You know that. I share them with you. Sometimes I misspeak when I do so. Hopefully I correct myself and apologize. If I have ever failed to do so, I apologize now. Um, The words we use, the words we misuse or overuse or use in ways that render them meaningless, uh, it's kind of an interesting conversation to have. And so as we enter into 2021, I'm going to encourage you to consider your words, consider your patterns of speech, consider uh, that which you are speaking in prayer and in conversation and over social media. In 2021, let me encourage you to say what you mean. And mean what you say. Uh, use words that matter. Use the word of God in ways that bear out the real meaning of the words and the author behind it. Uh, Psalm nineteen fourteen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O God. Think for a moment about the words that you have Uh, spoken, murmured, uttered, said under your breath in the last hour or the last week, the last day, have the words of our mouths, those that we have spoken out loud, those that we have spoken on social media, have the words of our mouths and have the meditations of our hearts been acceptable in light of who we know God to be, his holiness and our holy calling. What's really on our minds and on our hearts comes out, comes out under pressure. Um, Jesus uh, confirmed as much in Matthew 15 when he said, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of your mouth, that defiles a person. By way of explanation, Jesus went on to say, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is what defiles a person. Those are Jesus' words, Matthew 15. So with that in mind, um, let me just encourage you to consider the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart today. Words matter. The Word of God matters. The Word became flesh to dwell among us, full of what? Not filthy speech, but grace and truth. Ephesians 4.29 reminds us, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Philippians 4, 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is holy, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Ephesians 5, 4, let there be no filthiness, 
nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place among God's people. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. So that's my encouragement uh, today. Let us consider the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts and let them be increasingly acceptable in the sight of the Lord. Linda Mental is up next. We'll be right back. You hear her on the Faith Radio Network on the Dr. Linda Mental Show. You can certainly visit her online at drlindamental.com. Welcome back and Happy New Year. Hey, Happy New Year to you. It seems like it's been a long time. It's been a year ago that we talked. It has been a year ago (laughs) since we talked. And um, uh, I don't know about you, but um, it's time for some change. Oh, yeah. We've been having this conversation in our house. Uh, everybody probably is, you know, a new year, new you, uh, new things that we want to do this year that we didn't do last year. So again, conversations about losing weight, doing more exercise, reading our Bible more often. Those are the, the ones that have come up in our house. I don't know about you. Any of those no, conversations? No, that's pretty, much, pretty much exactly the same list. <laughs> okay. Mine also includes like somehow getting my clutter under control. But I ah. that one, I know. So there you go. Well, we had a show on that, Carmen. You ought to listen to the show. What does your clutter say about you was our, our show. So nice. clutter is indicative of things in your personality. <laughs> oh, so you oh I'm sure. You know, I could, you could just, your entire ministry could just revolve around all of the issues in my life. Like I, I could be, I could actually just be the representative person in most of your conversations. I have no question about that. So, all right, let's get, um, let's get focused in. Um, does, cause the focus is important here. I could make the, the long list and it be very nonspecific. I want to lose weight. I want to get organized. I want to read the Bible more. That's actually not going to get me anywhere. Right. So there are a couple of things when you're looking to make change, the couple of things that are very important. First of all, If you are someone who wants someone else to change and you tell them, look, it's time to lose weight or it's time for you to do this because you see the problem and you want them to fix it this year, just know that telling them that is not going to work. It's something called the writing reflex. That's R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G, writing reflex. When someone tells us, so when your doctor says you need to lose five pounds, or your doctor says, or your your boss says, I want you to come in earlier every day. Your natural tendency is to go, nope, not going to do that. No, thank you. So that does not work. So in order for change to really, really be important and to work to work this year, you have to have two things that you have to think about. The first one is how important is the change? Now, what I usually do with patients when they want to come in, they want to make a change. I'll usually say, okay, on a scale from one to 10, tell me on a scale from one to 10, one being, eh, I'm not that interested, but it's not that important. But 10 being, it is like the most important thing in my life. So if you think about a behavior you want to change or a habit you want to change, and you think I'm about a five, anything five or below you probably aren't going to make that change because it just isn't important enough. 
So first thing you have to think about is, am I somewhere on the high end of that scale to make a change? Because if it's not important, it's going to lose priority and you're not going to do it. And it's going to end up in those same failures that happen every time we make New Year's resolutions. The second point is, do I have the confidence to make the change? So I might think, wow, it's really important for me to make this change. So I really do need to you know, read my Bible every morning. That is a really important, I know it's important. It's a, it's a nine out of 10. I feel like I need to do it. But then where is my confidence on that same one through 10 scale? If I'm only, again, a three, because I've tried it and I have all these barriers that get in my way, I don't really have the confidence I can do it because I get up, then I'm running late, then I don't do it, then I get home, I'm making dinner, then I don't do it, then I get the kids to bed, and then I'm exhausted, I don't do it. So where is my confidence in making that change? If my confidence is low, it's not going to happen. So you've got to have high importance and high confidence in order to make a change. All right. So I have, uh, it's important to me, I've discovered something, I mean, of my list of 10 things that I want to change, I have discovered the the one or two that are of highest priority. And I'm confident that I have the ability, like I could do it. Um, I okay. can do it. Um, have so you looked what at the barriers? Have you looked at the barriers? What gets in the way? So one of the things that I that I help people with with this is, when you have had times of success in the past, what have you done that has been really that has made that success happen? So going back and looking at when you have made a change in some, it can be some other area of your life. What is it that happened that made that successful? So that's always a good strategy. But the other thing you have to contend with is what are the true barriers? Like what really gets in my way? Like for me, an exercise, I just have such an issue with when can I get this in? And that's a real barrier. I'm confident that I can do it when I get to it. But the barrier for me is when I, I it's so funny. I was at my um, OBGYN appointment and uh, my physician said to me, OK, Linda, come on, we can do this together. Why don't you join me at 430 in the morning and we'll get up and we'll go to uh, this trainer that I have and then we can both get it out of the way in the end the, before the day begins. And Carmen, I mean, I know you get up early because you have a morning show. I was like, uh, 4.30 in the morning, dark, cold, nope, <laughs> not going to do it. Well, and so it I, wouldn't be getting up at 4.30. I mean, if you have to be there at 4.30. Like, right. That's the, right. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. yeah, you have to roll out of bed at, you know, 4, four o'clock and then get yourself dressed and get to the, the training or the gym, which which you're not doing right now too much. But, you know, it's it's that's a barrier for me. So the barrier is when do I fit this into my schedule? And I have to figure out something that works in order for me to be successful with that. So that is really where people get tripped up is they don't anticipate the barriers that are going to stop them. They just have real good intentions, but you have to address each of those barriers. All right. We are going to take a very brief break. Linda Mintel and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Linda Mental, you can find her at drlindamental.com. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a licensed clinical social worker, and a national expert on relationships and the psychology of food, weight, and body image. We are talking about the change that we all want to make uh, here at the start of a new year. Um, So, Linda, let's just talk about the steps of change. 
Yeah. So, so we talked about importance and confidence in change and the, and the importance also of the change needs to be something you want to do, not something that someone else wants you to do. Because when someone else tells you to do something, that usually doesn't last too long. But here's the other part of change that we have to think about, and that is honestly assessing where are we at in terms of our stage of change. So there are a number of stages of change. And unless you're in something called the action stage, you're really not going to be ready to make a change. So a lot of people are in what's called pre-contemplation. They're, you know, they they know that maybe smoking is a problem, um, and that maybe they shouldn't do it. But then they say to themselves, oh, "I my grandfather smoked till he was 85 and never died of lung cancer." Or, um, you know, I still feel fine. Nothing is happening with me. I need it for stress and anxiety reduction, whatever. So they're in this pre-contemplation where it's really a, a form of denial where you really don't see it as a big issue. Now, other people might, but you don't. So if you're in pre-contemplation, you are not going to make a change. But then the next step is, so you might start thinking, well, maybe I am in danger. Maybe something could happen to me. Well, I don't feel good when I, when I wake up every day. I am short of breath. Um, but I still like the effects of smoking. So you're going back and forth and you're evaluating the, the pros and cons. That's a stage of change called contemplation. A lot of people are in that. They'll say, yeah, I know I need to lose weight, but you know, I really like having my three sodas a day and I don't want to give them up. Or, you know, I, I do know that I should drop a few pounds, but you know what? Eating is the one thing I can do during the pandemic. So there's this pro and con going on. Now, if you if you stay there and you try to make a change, you're not going to be successful. So the next stage that you're trying to move yourself to is continuing to think about those pros and cons to the point where you say, all right, there's enough of the, the pro to say, I'm going to do this. Then you have to move into a preparation stage. And that's where you really look at those barriers to your change. You think about okay, what do I need to do? So for a lot of people with smoking problems and they're, they're trying to quit smoking, just know, first of all, that it takes about the average person eight times before they quit. Uh, smoking rewires the brain. It's very addictive in the brain. You do need a lot of help. So you might need a medication um, to help you with that. You might need to do some of the, the, the gums or the patches and doing two of those together usually makes the success better. So you have to look at what are those barriers. If you live with someone who smokes, it's going to be much harder to, to quit smoking. If you're trying to lose weight and your partner is eating every night ice cream and things like that, it's going to be hard. So you have to prepare. You have to think, okay, what can I do to not slip into those uh, temptations or to slip into the same old, same old pattern? And then if you do that, then you can move into the action stage. And that's where people are really good at making change. So you have to take an, you know, an honest look at where am I in this process? And then when you're in action, you have to stay in it long enough to maintain the change. That's the final stage of change is maintenance. And so a lot of people can lose weight and drop 10 pounds but then they don't maintain the weight loss. And we know that after a year of people losing weight, after a year of someone who's dropped a number of pounds, usually they return right back to baseline where they were before because they haven't maintained the behaviors or the things that they need to do in order to keep the weight off. So if you're not in the action phase, you're not ready to start a change. So I would encourage all of you listening like to honestly say, am I kind of in denial about the problem? Am I going back and forth? Have I made any preparation? If you haven't gone through those stages, 
and you're really not ready for action, it's just a setup for failure. And I, I just don't want people to fail again, because that's the worst feeling is you, you start something, you fail and you go, oh, I can't do this. Here we go again. And yeah, and I probably can't do this, but I'm not doing this by myself. Talk a little bit about the role of of faith in, in the life of a person of faith and and the reliance that I can have upon the Holy Spirit. Like, I'm, I'm really not in this alone. Yeah, I, and I think that's where the confidence comes in. So if you are doing your part, and I think we have to do our part. So we mm-hmm. always act as if it all depends on us, but mm-hmm. we pray knowing it really does depend on God. So we have to set up the the things in our life that will make us successful. You know, we have to do the spiritual disciplines. We have to, you know, get up and actually exercise or or eat more healthy. But when you're struggling with that confidence, I think that's where the power of the Holy Spirit in you can be transforming. So you can you can say, okay, with God's help and his spirit living in me, then I have the confidence that God is going to help me. He's going to help me resist those temptations. I'm going to walk away. The Bible says flee, resist, you know, run from those things. Don't just stay there with the brownies in front of you and, and just pray for, you know, uh, the ability not to eat them, move away from the brownies, put them in foil, put them in the freezer, you know, so you don't see them. I mean, do the action steps, but then pray and you can pray for wisdom in making a change, what the best strategies are. You can ask the Lord to help you discern the type of people that would be beneficial to you to be around. You might need some professional help. You might need to go to counseling. There's no shame in that, especially if you get a Christian counselor who can, you know, integrate your, your, faith into what you're doing all the time. I mean, that's how I, I deal with people is the faith is the lens that we look through when we're trying to do all this. So understanding that you have an extra help, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in you is just really vital because there's power in that, in the, in the Holy Spirit in you, there's power to overcome the things that you, you know, don't want to do. And that's very assuring. So, Linda, I, I know that we're almost out of time, but I want to highlight um, this uh, this piece that you um, that you noted for me at the conversation, um, and it's about antidepressants and people relying on them, and they do work, but um, but they're not magic. Can you just give us give us a minute on that? Yeah, and we did a great show, Carmen, um, a couple of weeks ago. It would be on the Apple iTunes podcast on clinical depression. I had a a psychiatrist who I deeply respect, Christian psychiatrist, come on and talk about clinical depression. So many different causes of depression. So there, when depression is more situational, then therapy is really much more helpful. Um, but when you have more of an organic or a heritable, um, you know, a predisposition to depression, sometimes those antidepressants can be very helpful. They can get, just get you up and your mood a little bit more uh, clear so that you can do the kinds of things that we want to do with our life of faith and, and getting us activated and doing more. Um, volunteering and serving other people has been shown to be very effective uh, with depression. But if you need the antidepressant, there is, there's no shame in going to get them. They, they'd only work for about a third of the people. That's the thing that we don't talk about a whole lot. But the third of people that they work for, they can be life-changing. And it's just like if somebody were to have diabetes, you wouldn't say, well, don't take your insulin, just pray and, and trust God. You would say, take your insulin, pray and trust God. So I think there's a role for antidepressants with people that are struggling. Uh, sometimes it's trial and error. 
We don't have um, a great way of predicting which antidepressant people will do best with. So sometimes people get discouraged and give up because they try something doesn't work so well, or maybe the dose is too low and they need to wait until they get more to a therapeutic dose. But when you find one that works and it can be very helpful, it can be the boost that you need and to you know start to improve your mood, engage in life, engage in your faith life in a more active way and real healing can happen. Linda, as always, thank you so much. Uh, Happy New Year. We look forward to the next conversation. Blessings on you. That's Dr. Linda Mental. You can find her at drlindamental.com. You can also find uh, her show here on the Faith Radio Network and uh, as a podcast. Uh, Linda, thank you, as always, so much. Great talking to you. Happy New Year. You too. Happy New Year. We'll be right back. When was the last time you really thought about how you think about yourself and why you think about yourself the way you do? So this is not uh, navel-gazing. This is actually looking back over the course of history to understand how we got here, how we got to the place and time when um, a sentence, when a particular sentence, such as the sentence, I am a woman trapped in a man's body becomes uh plausible actually something that we we don't just understand but we actually like all understand Uh, that is the conversation that i am going to have next with carl truman the book is the rise and triumph of the modern self cultural amnesia expressive individualism and the road to sexual revolution it is an intellectual heavy lift there are words in this book i had to look up But it is excellent. And if you want to understand how we got here, how we got to the place um, where everything is sex and everything is politics, um, this book actually explains it. Carl Truman, up next. This is Max Lacato. God knows the way forward. No matter what kind of disappointment or grief or trouble or heartache you've encountered, God offers an opportunity to begin again. In his plan, prodigals get a new robe. The weary find new strength, and the lonely find a friend. Your current circumstances will not get the final say in your life. To all the Noahs of the world, to all who search the horizon for a glimpse of hope, God proclaims, yes. And he comes. He comes as a dove. He comes bearing fruit from a distant land, from our future home. He comes with a leaf of promise that he can make all things new. By God's grace, you can find your way to dry land. You can watch the waters subside. You can step out on fresh soil. With God as your guide, you, yes, you, can begin again. This is Max Licato. So as means of introduction, uh, Dr. Carl Truman is a professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College. Um, and I think I'm going to stop there so that he and I have as much time as possible to talk about his newest contribution to the conversation about how we got here. The book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. Uh, Carl, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. 
Um, you make me want to go back to school. <laughs> reading this book, reading this book, like I want to, I just want to pack up and I want to come to Grove City and I just want to take a class because, or, or not just a class, I want to immerse myself because um, this is this is like a textbook for understanding um, history for the last two and a half, three centuries. And it actually like lays it out in a way that helps me understand the world I live in today. And I can't imagine a better exercise of of a historical look back, even though I recognize it's not comprehensive. You say that a bunch of times, um, but it is substantial and it's understandable. So thank you. Well, thanks for saying that's very encouraging. I did have to look up some words, which um, just just demonstrates the the paltry nature of my of my education. Let's start with this. Um, what what it feels like you're doing, and this is what you describe. You're really answering a question: When does a particular sentence become plausible? So, even if I, as a Christian who understands that truth is that which aligns with reality, and I understand there are real barriers to a a person who is biologically uh, male becoming biologically female, I still understand a particular sentence as plausible when someone says. Uh, I am a woman trapped in a man's body. Your grandfather would have laughed at that sentence. That's how you start this out. So talk about helping us understand when a particular sentence becomes plausible. Yeah, that that is the key sentence in the book uh, in many ways, and the book was designed to try to explain that. Of course, that's, yeah, I think one of the things that Christians have been struggling with, certainly over the last 10 or 15 years, is the speed of the sexual revolution, of which transgenderism is the latest and perhaps most extreme example. And I think one of the things we need to do is to understand that the sexual revolution, it, it doesn't emerge out of nowhere. It's it, The foundations of it are really laid over over many centuries. And we need to understand the sexual revolution as a fundamental transformation of what it means to be a human being, of what it means to be a self. So the statement, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, is only plausible when a whole host of other things have already been accepted by society. Supremely, the idea that my inner desires, what I think about myself internally, my psychology, if you like, is absolutely determinative of who I am. And it's the story of of that sort of shift that I try to trace in the book. When we... um... If I were just to start a conversation, you know, having met you on the street for the very first time, and and I had asked you a question, who are you? The way we answer that question today is fundamentally different than a person would have answered it um, in history. So talk about the question, who are you, in terms of the self becoming something comprehensible. Yeah, well, uh, I mean... Hopefully, most, if not all, of your listeners are familiar with the Bible. And uh, and if you look in the Bible, characters are often introduced as the son of uh, David, the son of Jesse. When you think about that sentence, what that means is that the most important thing about David when you first meet him is who his father is. It's something external to himself. He's located in a, a broader, already established framework that is greater than him and gives him his identity. As a Christian, we might extrapolate that even further and say, you know, who am I? Well, I'm one made in the image of God. I'm not the center of the universe. I am who I am because I'm connected to something much greater. Today, quite often, 
when we uh, talk about identities, we will talk about that which is particular to me. Uh, if you met uh, somebody from the LGBTQ movement and said to them, uh, you know, who are you? They might say, well, I'm, I'm a gay man. Well, what do they mean by that? They're really saying there that my desires are the most important thing about me. It's not some location in wider society or the wider culture. It's my inner desires determine who I am. And that's the kind of the key shift that takes place. And I think it's, it really starts or really starts to accelerate uh, in the 18th century with the uh, Genevan philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau and then the great romantics of the late 18th, early 19th century, who place an emphasis upon, upon the internal. No longer am I Carl, son of John, comes from Gloucestershire in the United Kingdom. I'm Carl who has this set of desires or this set of personal ambitions or feelings that really constitute who I am. All right. I am talking with Carl Truman, um, and we could talk about um, where his name comes from, True Man. I, I, I love that. I hope you have written about that somewhere um, or now will. <laughs> Um, because I think that's uh, that's significant. Um, and we are talking about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Yes, I have copies to give away. Um, if, if you're ready for a heavy lift, I had to look up words, so you probably will too. Um, but if you're ready for a heavy lift, this is the book that Rod Dreher told us we needed to read next after, um, after we finished uh, Live Not By Lies. And so we're talking with Carl Truman today. And if you are interested in entering the drawing for the copies of the books that we have in studio, text the word book to 877-933-2484. More of this intellectual feast up next. Continuing my conversation with Dr. Carl Truman, we are talking about his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. If you're interested in entering the drawing for the books we have here in studio, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Dr. Truman, what is the social imaginary and why is it important that I understand um, the current social imaginary if I want to understand the times in which we live? Yeah, good question. I think uh, the social imaginary is is the way most people, or the way all of us to some extent, relate to the world around us. If you think about it, by and large, we don't think about the world in terms of first principles. We don't think back to the first principles that make everything uh, possible. We imagine the world to be a certain way. I have no idea how electricity works, but I know that when I flip the switch in my study, the light comes on. It's part of the way I imagine the world to be. And that applies to morality as well. Uh, We tend not to think about morals in terms of going back to first principles. We often tend to think about morals in in that which which intuitively appeals to us, which intuitively seems to work. And the importance of that for, for Christians today, I think, is to realize that, first of all, Arguments will only get you so far when you're talking to your to your non-Christian friends, because most of what they believe, they don't believe on the basis of an argument. They believe it on the basis of intuitions. Secondly, I think it makes us it helps us realize how the sexual revolution has triumphed so quickly because most people don't think about sex and sexuality in terms of you know, having read great heavy books of, of sexual ethics or books of moral theory. 
they watch soap operas, they watch sitcoms, they watch YouTube videos. And the plots, the narratives, the appealing characters shape how we think about the purpose and function of sex, the purpose and function of identity. They, they shape our intuitions. And I think uh, it's important for Christians to realize that because A, it helps us to know what we're up against. And B, it should help us develop strategies for, for counteracting that. Uh, within our own communities and within within the wider community. So that feels like, um, you know, when I read all the way to the end of the book and I am um, <clears throat> I'm tempted to lament, which you which you allow me to do for a few paragraphs and then you suggest <laughs> I move on to something else. Um, um, but there is you know, I do want to tell people that at the end of the book, there is uh, there is a look forward. But the substance of the book is a look back to help us understand how we got here, um, and it is uh, it is an excellent um, examination of the people, the characters, the the thinking, the literature, the poetry that moved us to the place where we are today. Um, and so th- these movers and shakers are not the ones who are making the headlines, and that's I, I think important to uh, to recognize. Most of us were not educated. Um, formally in this. So this is like your formal educate, your formal remedial education of how we got here over the last uh, two and a half centuries, three centuries. All right. So today, Dr. Truman, um, the feelings based self is always right. Society is always wrong and therefore must be torn down. The self demands affirmation and recognition. And if I don't buy into that delusion, then I must be canceled. I mean, that that feels like the summary. Yes. And I think that you, you're putting your finger on on the much broader implications of the narrative that I tell that this goes way beyond the sexual revolution. It plays into notions of religious freedom, freedom of speech, those kind of things. And I think that Christians need to grasp the, the breadth and the depth of the problem and to realize that certainly, I think, for the foreseeable future, certainly for my lifetime, Really, the the way forward for Christians at this point is to is to retrench and to start to think locally, to strengthen our local church communities. If the social imaginary is shaped by the culture in which we live, then we need to make sure that our local church culture is a strong culture that is shaping the social imaginary of our young people in an appropriate way. Because we are up against a society that has now really you know, flipped, not just abandoned. Christian thinking on the whole, but has flipped to a very oppositional position relative to Christian thinking. So I think that the solution is regrouping as a local church and strengthening local community at this point. So um, I'll I'll disclose, um, you know, some things about myself that my audience is well aware of. I, Carmen, live in a world where God is present everywhere, all the time. I walk with God. I talk with God. I understand myself as his child, an agent of his grace, an ambassador of his kingdom. You know, I'm seeking to yield moment by moment to his influence, to the active work of the Holy Spirit within me, that I might be brought into greater conformity with who Christ is. Like, I want everyone else to know God as I do through the grace that's offered in Jesus Christ. I am going to be increasingly frustrated um, in the world as you describe it. 
Yes, uh, but I think it's not an unprecedented position for the church to be in. One of the things I do towards the end of the book is say, when you think about the church today, it's it's very similar in many ways to the, the church of the second century, which was a, a minor sect. If the Romans thought about it at all, they thought about it as, as an immoral and seditious group. Uh, and yet the church of the second century uh, ended up flourishing, became very strong during the third and then triumphant in, in the fourth century. So, yes, I think that you may well find your life uh, frustrating, but you and I need to remember the story ultimately isn't about us. It's the task of our generation to prepare and strengthen the church for the next generation. So we should not, I think, necessarily look for our own fulfillment uh, or for fulfillment in our own time. We should be playing the long game here and thinking about what does the church need to be in the long term in order, humanly speaking, to survive, to flourish and to thrive. So that unmasks, I mean, as soon as you say that, as soon as you suggest to me and to to all of us that, you know, what we need here is a 100 or 200 year view, you immediately then unmask the reality um, that we are all expressive individualists, because as soon as you say I that, you know, Carmen, you need to take a two or, th- or you know, 100 or 200 year view. This is about the generations yet to come. My own expressive individualism, the reality that I'm swimming in the waters of psychological man, resist and immediately push back and say, oh, what about me? What about the meaning of my life? How's that going to right? I mean, this is this yeah. is the point you're making in the book as well. Yeah. And I think. Uh, if, if you think about medieval cathedrals, say to the students, you know, the first man who laid a stone for a medieval cathedral knew that he wasn't going to live to see the completed product, but he still thought it was worthwhile because it was bigger than him. And I think we need to think that way. And and as depressing as it is to, to be sort of convicted by that, I do think that once we understand the way we are impacted by expressive individualism, we are better able to, to handle that within our own lives. Uh, it's a little bit like being an alcoholic if you like, the first step is the acknowledgement that, yes, we are part of the problem. And that frees us up then, I think, to develop strategies to help compensate for that, even as we can never fully escape from it. Um, all right. So one more question, and because we're just nearly out of time, and I could talk to you for hours. I just I commend this book to everyone, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Carl Truman. Um, text the word book to 877-933-2484 if you want to get in on the drawing. Um, what is anti-culture? Because I think that I want people to understand this before we go. Yeah, this is a, a difficult concept in some ways, but essentially culture throughout the ages has been the transmission of the values of one generation down to the next. That's what our cultural institutions, uh, our artists, our politicians, Uh, general cultural institutions have done. We live in a position now where the elites of society are in the game of overthrowing the values of the past. So they are, in effect, an anti-culture. It's not that they are transmitting the values of the past to the present in a way that makes them helpful and useful. They see their job as tearing tearing down those values and destroying them. And I, I would say that's really unworthy of the name culture in many ways. It's actually opposed. It's anti what culture typically does. Um, yeah, it, just so much good content here. Um, we're out of time today, but thank you so much for this contribution to the conversation. Thank you for pouring this into the lives of students at, at Grove City College. Um, just, just thank you. I hope you'll come back and talk with us again. 
I would love to. And, and thanks for pointing out my politically incorrect surname. I love that. <laughs> True man. I love it. All right. It's uh, it's Dr. Carl Truman. Uh, the book is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We'll be right back. Okay, so I really needed um, the time off to read the book because it, it, is, a, it is a heavy lift, but it's so worthwhile. Um, we're going to have to think deeply. We're going to have to, uh, in the in the spirit of, uh, of JT English, who we talked with at the end of last year, um, we're going to have to deepen our discipleship. We're going to have to go deep, um, and we're going to have to take others around us into deeper waters in order that uh, we're going to be able to swim in the cultural currents of our day. So that's, uh, that's where we're going to be here uh, on Mornings with Carmen. Tomorrow morning, Luke Moon is going to be here uh, from the Philos Project. We're going to talk about some global headlines also going to check in with uh, our friends at the Christian Medical and Dental Association. Mike Moore will be here with his new book, Muted Voice. Um, every day, uh, Paul Perot dutifully puts together a great lineup of conversation partners for us. So, Paul, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Welcome. Yeah. All right, everyone. Happy New Year. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.